The Guardian. Hello, my name is Lauren Oliver, and you are listening to the Guardian Children's Books Podcast. Um, I'm here today, and I'm going to be reading a little excerpt from my book, Requiem, which is the third book in the Delirium Trilogy. Um, For those of you who are familiar with the trilogy, you'll know that uh, it's a little bit difficult to read from the final book without giving away spoilers. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I'm going to tell you this is a trilogy about a world in which love has been declared a contagious disease, and scientists have figured out the cure. And so I'm going to read a passage with no spoilers. Um, This is from the point of view of the character Hannah. There are two points of view in Requiem. Hannah is the best friend of the protagonist, Lena, who we have gotten to know in Delirium and Pandemonium, the first two books. Want to know my deep, dark secret? In Sunday school, I used to cheat on the quizzes. I could never get into the safety, happiness, and health handbook, not even as a kid. The only section of the book that interested me at all was Legends and Grievances, which is full of folktales about the world before the cure. My favorite, the story of Solomon, goes like this. Once upon a time, during the days of sickness, two women and an infant went before the king. Each woman claimed that the infant was hers. Both refused to give the child to the other woman and pleaded their cases passionately, each claiming that she would die of grief if the baby were not returned solely to her possession. The king, whose name was Solomon, listened to both their speeches and at last announced that he had a fair solution. We'll cut the baby in two, he said, and that way each of you will have a portion. The women agreed that this was fair, and so the executioner was brought forward, and with his axe he sliced the baby cleanly in two. And the baby never cried or so much as made a sound, and the mothers looked on, and afterward, for a thousand years, There was a spot of blood on the palace floor that could never be cleaned or diluted by any substance on earth. I must have been only eight or nine when I read that passage for the first time, but it really struck me. For days I couldn't get the image of that poor baby out of my head. I kept picturing it split open on the tile floor, like a butterfly pinned behind glass. That's what's so great about the story. It's real. What I mean is, even if it didn't actually happen, it shows the world truthfully. I remember feeling just like that baby, torn apart by feeling, split in two, caught between loyalties and desires. That's how the diseased world is. That's how it was for me before I was cured. When I was kind of thinking about what to write as a follow-up to my first novel, Before I Fall, which Before I Fall focused very prominently on themes of death, the main character kind of relives the last day of her life seven times. So I was thinking about what I wanted to address after after finishing completing Before I Fall, and I actually read a quote. At the time, I, I stumbled across a quote by um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, one of my favorite writers. And in it, he said that all good books are about either love or death. Now, having just written you know, a novel, uh, 
in which the main character dies seven times effectively, I figured I'd adequately address the death themes for the time being, and I started wondering how I could write about love, not just a romance, but actually write about love and familial love and platonic love and its place in our society. And then it's true, several days later, I was on a treadmill and I was watching a news report uh, about the panic. This was in 2008, so about the panic over the swine flu, I believe it was at the time, although it might have been the bird flu, I always get them confused. But it seemed like periodically there were these, every couple of years, these panics over these epidemics that were supposedly going to come and eradicate our society. And I started thinking about, you know, how easy it is to be driven into a fear over over contagion, especially in, in the modern world. And somehow I guess I, I tripped or stumbled and the two ideas of contagion and love kind of combined in my head. And then I realized, I, re- I started thinking and I realized that, you know, if you looked at the symptoms of romantic love, it has a lot in common with, you know, the psychiatric disorders that we normally treat with medication. And that's how I came up with the idea for Delirium about a society that has cured love. Which is kind of a tempting idea sometimes, isn't it? You know, you, you, you explore the the dystopian horrific side of it, but you can see that, that you know, in, in the last book, Lena is torn between two boys and, and she's experiencing the pain of love. Mm-hmm. You can see there must be a temptation, a sort of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of way. I think people have an idea and the idea gets propagated that if you make a certain set of choices in your life, that you can make a certain set of choices in your life and achieve happiness. And happiness looks like one thing. It's kind of a unilateral view of, you know, you you get the husband and the car and the house, and then, then you become happy. An exaggerated version of that goes on in the society of delirium. They believe that actually it's less painful if you don't have to choose, and if the choice is made for you, and if you kind of live in this protected and stabilized uh, environment. And I think that the pain of choice, the pain of loss, the flip side of having the freedom to love and choose, it can be really devastating. It can be overwhelming. I think anybody who's ever experienced loss or heartbreak or just the agony of not knowing whether you'll you'll find love and whether it's meant for you, I think it is relatable to kind of fantasize that maybe it would be better if you didn't have those kind of impulses. And do you think to some extent that happens already in our society with teens and the way Increasingly, we, we medicalize emotions. So if you're too excitable, then you go on to Ritalin to calm yourself down. If you're too down, you take antidepressants to be more up. Well, I'm not anti-medication in many contexts, but I do think that, you know, we are an incredibly medicated society. I think that we have an intolerance of our own feelings, for sure. You know, I think there's a lot of repression and sublimation of emotions, sure. And I think some of it goes, you know, is medicated. Some of it's medicated in other ways with inability to be by yourself, inability not to be constantly online, or, you know, we medicate with food, we medicate with alcohol, we medicate in all these different ways. Um, I think people definitely are afraid of their own feelings. Feelings. And it's because feelings are can be really overwhelming and scary and you can feel like you can drown in them. And how did you feel at the, the end of the third book? I get the feeling you can't quite bear to let go of these characters yet. You've, <laughs> you've written uh, novellas around, individual stories around mm-hmm. some of the, the characters. And with the ending of the book, there's a sense that maybe it's not quite the end. No, no, the ending of the book is definitely the end. I mean, I was very, very sad to let go of the characters. I always knew that I wanted to leave it with a little bit more complexity. Um, And it's not because I felt I was unable to let them go, but it's partly because I love books in which you feel that there's a suggestion 
of the world outside and beyond, you know, what is in the pages, that these characters in this world has an external reality that is not even under the control of the writer. Um, I tend to kind of love books like that. Um, but it was very difficult. I mean, when I first finished the book, I was very relieved, actually. Um, you know, I spent years of my life working on this. But it is sad now, now that I'm on tour and you know, saying goodbye and talking about these characters for the last time, there's definitely a bittersweet element to it, for sure. But they are going to pop up again on television, aren't they? There's going to be a TV series. I think that was just announced uh, last month, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Well, they're filming the pilot now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Darren Kagasoff is uh, who was in The Secret Life of the American Teenager. He's going to play Alex and... Um, Greg Sulkin, who was in Pretty Little Liars, um, is going to play Julian. And it's really funny because both of them, as actors, have these characteristics that make them so perfect for the roles. And uh, it's very, very cute because, you know, Greg reached out to me and said, I'm so honored to be in this and I can't wait. I'm going to try to do everybody proud, which is just such a Julian attitude to express. And Darren, who's also very nice, but, you know, showed up to rehearsal in a leather jacket and probably on a motorcycle. So so I feel that they've both been perfect, are perfectly embodying the types. And are you going to have any involvement in that around the writing? Part of element of TV is that you need so much material. I mean, TV burns through source material. So, you know, by episode three, they'd essentially be done with ex- having exhausted all of the material from my books. Um, I'm very close to the producer. I'm in touch directly with the scriptwriter. I won't be writing any part of the screenplay, which is a good thing because I have zero experience and it would be a traumatic situation for everyone involved, least of all, especially the viewer. But um, I will definitely be fe- you know, in conversation about the kind of things that can happen and how to expand the world and what I envisioned. And and then, you know, it, there will be some kind of level of collaboration. But I also have to say that I really, really trust and believe in the people who are bringing this to TV. And I know that they love the books and I know that they love this project. So I feel a little bit less anguished than perhaps other writers would. And what's the situation with Before I Fall and the film of that? It's still chugging along. I mean, you know, it's so funny contrasting the two experiences. TV, when it happens, it happens so quickly. You know, Before I Fall has a beautiful script and a director and a studio and a couple actresses who have expressed interest, you know, big actresses that I can't talk about in in wanting to be in it, but we're still searching for our Sam. And until we, we really find her, it's still stalling a little bit. But it's going forward. It's just going forward at the pace of film, which can be very glacial. And what are you working on now, now that Requiem is, apart from touring yeah. and publicizing, and yeah. what's next for you? Well, my next book is coming out next spring. It's called Panic. It's a big departure from the, the Delirium series, although... Um, It's a return to standalone um, realistic fiction for teens, and it is about a small town in upstate New York where the kids play a very dangerous game every summer called Panic, thus the title. And then actually next fall, I have my first quote-unquote grown-up book coming out, which is called Rooms. So I have a couple irons in the fire. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.